there is a song that I like that's called uh, Dive In. And I'm not going to tell you uh, who the song is by because I don't want you to be distracted by the fact that I like Dave Matthews. Uh, good. Uh, this song, Dive In, is a song about the brokenness and fallenness of the world that we live in. Um, and the longing we all have for things to sort of be set right. There's a line in that song that I think it's clever, there's clever because of its simplicity. I think it uh, expresses a desire that a lot of people harbor, a desire that a lot of us have. The line goes, Tell me everything is all taken care of by those qualified to take care of it all. To me, that line is really childlike. One of the best things about being a child is being free from the burden of being a responsible adult, dealing with bills and work and the messy stuff of real life that adults are, are forced to handle. And I think it's very normal to long for a sort of carefree, simple life where we don't have to worry about those sort of things. Tell me everything is all taken care of by those qualified to take care of it all. We humans, I think, are inclined to let other people handle it. We like it that way. We like to be taken care of. And so when I say again and again and again from this pulpit that God does not need us, that his plans do not depend on us, and that he will accomplish his plans with or without us, there can be, and in some ways should be, a sense of relief. That there is someone qualified to take care of it all, and taking care of it all in his time, in his way, and for his purposes is exactly what God is up to. But we have to be careful here because that line of thinking can easily go too far. We all have this longing, but that longing can easily go too far. Remember, just last week we talked about the significance of your beliefs. Especially those beliefs that are embedded that you might not be aware of that you take for granted. Those beliefs have a profound impact on who you are and on what you do. When you add together God's sovereignty and our inclination, our longing to let other people handle it, we can easily use God's sovereignty as an excuse to absolve ourselves of responsibility. The church is not my responsibility, or I am not at all responsible for the health and growth of the church. That's God's project. He'll take care of it. And even on the human side of the equation, there's this idea that has impressed itself on a lot of people's minds. A lot of people have this institutional idea of the church, that the church is some institution run by some people who are qualified to take care of it all. And it's their responsibility, those people out there, to make sure that the church is healthy and growing and meets my needs. The church is something outside of me. But of course, that's just not true. It's just false. The church is a community, a family of people. We are the church, you and I. It's not something out there. There's not some group or organization that has it all handled. The church is you and me, and the New Testament gives us all the responsibility to contribute to the health and growth of that community, the church. If the church is going to be healthy and growing, then we need to take ownership and responsibility, each one of us, individually. We need to be invested. The church is not something out there taken care of by them. 
The church is you and me. And I'm not being poetic and metaphorical when I say that. I mean that quite literally. And when I say literally, I actually mean literally. The church is not some building, some place, or some institution. The church is literally a community, the community of Christians. So though we might want to, we can't just let someone else handle it. We all have to take responsibility. We all have to take ownership for the church's health and growth. There can be no other way. When I first conceived of this series, or or was led, I believed, to preach this series, I was drawn to Acts because it is, as I've said again and again and again, the story of how God builds his church. The story of Acts is the story of how God builds his church. I think it's easy to think of Peter and Paul as the main character, the main characters of Acts. But when you open your eyes to this idea that Acts is a story all about God and what he does, I think it's pretty easy to see that God is the main character. He is the one who drives the plot forward in the book of Acts. Peter, Paul, and others are merely instruments in God's hands as the story of the book of Acts plays itself out. God is the one who, quote-unquote, makes things happen in the book of Acts. Think again just about a few of the stories that we've looked at so far as we've worked our way through the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, for example the day that a lot of people would say was the very start of the church. Something miraculous happened because God initiated and empowered his people by pouring out the Holy Spirit. The story of Pentecost is remarkable not because of anything Peter did, but because of what God did on that day. God is the main character of that story. We next look at Saul's uh, conversion in Acts chapter 9. Again, the miraculous happened because God intervened and he himself did the miraculous. Saul didn't come to faith because of anything any person did. Saul came to faith because of what God did, because God intervened. Acts 9 is not a story about people. It's a story about what God can do when he intervenes. Next, we looked at the story of the conversion of Cornelius. And again, it's God who orchestrates these events. Think about this. If you can remember the details of that story, how much God is the one driving all of this forward. God, via an angel, tells Cornelius that he should seek out Peter. God gives Peter a vision and gives him specific instructions to receive the men whom Cornelius has sent. And though we didn't really focus on this aspect of the story when we went through it, it's actually sort of a comical part of the story. When Peter is finally giving the gospel, Acts 10.44 tells us that the Holy Spirit was was poured out while Peter was still speaking. In a sense, God interrupted Peter to, pull out, to pour out the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles who had gathered to hear the gospel at Cornelius' house. So the first Gentiles who were saved were not saved because Peter was a charismatic and persuasive evangelist. That is not the, those aren't the details of the story that you find in Acts chapter 10. The first Gentiles were saved because God intervened and poured out the Holy Spirit, because God orchestrated and caused the events of Acts chapter 10. So again and again and again, God is clearly and explicitly the one who is orchestrating these events, intervening and making the miraculous happen. It doesn't really matter what tool he's using, whether it's Peter, Paul, Silas, Barnabas, or anyone else, some of the minor characters in the book of Acts. These are all just tools in God's hand. God is the main character in all of these stories. He's the common denominator, so long as it's not blasphemous to call God a denominator. He is the common denominator. The book of Acts is a story about how God 
build his church. Remember, I, I think this is crucially important. All the way back at the beginning, in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, we learn that the former, Luke's former work, the Gospel of Luke, was the story of what Jesus began to do and teach. And the, the story of Acts is the story of what Jesus continues to do and teach. That is extremely significant. So I've tried every Sunday to repeat again and again and again that God does not need you or me. His plans and purposes for his church do not depend on you or me, on how, on how talented and clever we are or on how hard we work. Those, that is not the basis for the health and growth of the church. God is faithful and he will fulfill his plans and purposes with or without you or me or anyone else. And I mean that message as an encouragement. That's meant to be an encouragement about the future of the church. Remember the first week we looked at some human developments that can cause us to be discouraged about the future of the church. But we shouldn't be because the future of the church does not depend on any human thing. So these trends, while they're real and, uh, and in some senses discouraging, our faith in the future of the church should be dependent upon God and his faithfulness to do the things that he said he was going to do. That is good news. I'm glad that God does not depend on me. I'm relieved that God does not depend on me. When he does, what he does is far too important to be dependent upon you or me or any one individual human person. Praise God that he is faithful, he is powerful, he is able, and that he will accomplish his plans and purposes, period, no qualifiers. Thank God for that. All that being said, while God does not depend on us, truly, literally depend on us, by His mercy and grace, He does give us the opportunity to be on board with His project. And I think these stories in the book of Acts, I hope as we've worked through these stories in the book of Acts, they give us some insight into how it is that we get on board. God is building his church. We have the opportunity to get on board. How do we do it? And I think these stories hopefully have helped you see how it is that we can get on board. So far we've looked at a number of things uh, that relate to how it is we can get on board with God's project. But particularly with respect to this the things that stand out in my mind, and I hope they stand out in your mind as well, are the faithful obedience of the disciples in Acts chapter 1. Remember, just prior to the day of Pentecost, Peter and the disciples, 120 or so, did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They devoted themselves to prayer, and they waited in Jerusalem. That's a remarkable example as, as it relates to us getting on board with God's project. The other example that stands out in my, in my mind is the here I am, Lord, attitude of Ananias in Acts chapter 9, the story of Saul's conversion. The disciples did not make the events of Acts chapter 2 happen. They didn't cause it. Acts chapter 2 didn't happen because of what the disciples did in Acts chapter 1. Ananias did not cause Saul's conversion. He's not the one who converted Saul. But they were both used by God as tools in his hand as he worked out his plans and purposes. We have the same opportunity to be on board, to be used by God, if we will do things like devote ourselves to a faithful, obedient, abiding relationship with God, like the disciples in Acts chapter 1, and if we will foster a here-I-am-Lord attitude like Ananias did in Acts chapter 9. But as I've already started to introduce, there's some version of an age-old question that we need to address. 
if God's going to do what he's going to do, with or without me, then do I have any real proactive responsibilities? If God is going to do what he's going to do, with or without you or me, then do you and I have any real proactive responsibilities? And proactive is a key word there. Sure, I know I'm supposed to devote myself to a relationship with God and to foster a here-I-am Lord attitude, but those are sort of reactive responsibilities, if you will. We have to respond. We have to put our place. We have to put ourselves in a place to respond to God when He leads, when He calls. I think of this sort of like a fireman, and I have the utmost respect for firemen. I don't entirely know what you do uh, if you're a fireman, so uh, no disrespect is meant to this. By this, I know there's more to your job than this. But like a fireman waits at the firehouse for a call, so we as Christians are to wait for God's call. But if no call comes, or until a call comes, are we responsible to do anything more than that? Or do we just wait? Do we have any proactive responsibilities? Is there more to being on board with God's project? Is there anything we are supposed to be, again, proactive in doing? Or is being proactive an assault on God's sovereignty? Is proactivity just taking matters into our own hands, advancing our own initiatives for the church, rather than waiting on God's leading. Maybe you're following with me, with me at this point. I hope you see the point I'm trying to make, the difficulty that arises when we have this strong view of God's sovereignty. It can lead us to a misconception about what that sovereignty implies. I think your beliefs and mine are extremely important. We just talked about that last week. For the most part, you do what you do because you believe what you believe. And I think it's common, even tempting, to believe that the church is someone else's responsibility. Someone qualified to take care of it all. It's tempting to believe that God's sovereignty somehow absolves you and I of responsibility. God's going to do what He's going to do, so I just trust that and leave it to God. If He wants me to do something, I'll do it, but for the most part, I just go about my business trusting what God, that God is in control and waiting for Him to use me if and when he wants to. We need to look to Scripture to see if that is truly the extent of the Christian life, or do we in fact have some sort of proactive responsibility? Is there more to it than sitting back and waiting? Like most dangerous misconception, the belief that God's sovereignty absolves us of our responsibility has some elements of truth to it. I think that's the way dangerous misconceptions work. They're half-truths or partial truths. God is in control. That's the truth. God is not dependent on humans. God will do what he plans to do with or without you, and nothing you, I, or anyone else can do will thwart him. God cannot be thwarted. But none of that absolves us of our proactive responsibility to contribute to the health and growth of the church. Every one of us has that responsibility. It's true for every Christian, not just pastors and elders and Sunday school teachers. We all have a responsibility. We all have a proactive role to play. God has left us with standing orders, and it's our responsibility to proactively do what God has instructed us to do. No amount of clever Christian rationalizing can absolve us of those responsibilities. No appeals to God's sovereignty can get you out of the fact that you and I have responsibilities. We ought to wait for God to lead us absolutely. 
And we ought to follow when God does lead us. Absolutely. But in the meantime, we have responsibilities that we are responsible to proactively execute. Today, we're obviously going to be back in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at the story of a man named Apollos in Acts chapter 18. You can open your Bibles at this point to Acts chapter 18. I think the story of Apollos is a near-perfect illustration of what it looks like in practice to do what the New Testament commands us to do in passages like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. I want to really sort of drive that home from the outset. What Apollos does in Acts chapter 18, I think, is a near-perfect illustration. What does it look like to obey the commands that God lays out for us throughout the New Testament in passages like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. I want to give you those references specifically so that you can write them down because I'd like you to take some time this week, if you can, to review those passages. These are, this is my proposal to you, that these are our standing orders. This is what our proactive responsibility, uh, one of our primary proactive responsibilities in the church. Romans 12, 1 through 8. Romans 12, 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. You may remember that was a part of obviously what we covered uh, a little over a month ago when we went through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. Now, we're not going to go through those texts today, but I'll refer back to them on a few occasions. All of those texts, though, give us instructions about our responsibility as Christians to use our unique gifts to serve and love one another and to build up the body of Christ. All of those passages relate to that same issue. As I've said many times before and in many settings, both here and in various teaching settings, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. Each one of us Christians has a unique gift or gifts. And we have been given those gifts for the sake of serving and loving people. To use those gifts to build up the church. What does this look like? Well, as I've said, I think the story of Apollos in Acts chapter 18 illustrates exactly that. So let's turn and look at it now. I want to read the story and then make four observations about Apollos' example that I hope will help us as we strive to serve and love in our own church community. So, Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he power, powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. First observation I want to make about this example 
and it's probably the most obvious of the observations I'll make, is that, that Apollos had a gift and he used his gift in the service of others. Apollos had a gift and he used his gift in the service of others. Apollos was clearly a gifted teacher and speaker. When you look at verses 24 and 25 of the story, they say he was eloquent, competent, and fervent in spirit. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke and taught accurately. This is a gifted teacher and speaker. Apollos did not start his ministry in Ephesus because the people there got together and said, Hey, we need a speaker. Does anybody want to do it? And Apollos said, Yeah, I'd love to teach. Let me give it a try. Apollos was gifted in this area. Other people recognized that he was gifted in this area. And he had invested in developing that gift. It was because he was gifted by God in this area that he had the ministry that he had. It wasn't a matter of him just wanting to do it or thinking it would be interesting or him feeling a need, being slotted into some ministry need in Ephesus. He was gifted in this area. Passages like, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4 teach us that we all have gifts as Christian. Every Christian has been given a gift or gifts by God. And we have been given those gifts first and foremost for the purpose of serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not something that's unique to Apollos or to elders or to deacons or Sunday school teachers. Every one of you, if you are a Christian, you have been given a gift and you have been given that gift for the purpose of serving at least your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the clear teaching again and again and again in the New Testament. These are the standing orders that God leaves for us. We each have a responsibility to proactively use our gifts in the church. Now, I think a lot of times a lot is made about gifts and they seem more complicated and mysterious than they need to be. If you want to know what your gifts are, ask yourself the question, what am I good at? Start there. What are you good at? And because we all have a remarkable ability to deceive ourselves and to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, ask your spouse, what am I good at? Ask a close friend, what am I good at? Somebody who knows you. In addition to asking what you're good at, ask yourself, what resources has God given me in abundance? God has blessed you in some unique way, with some gift, with some resource. What am I good at? What resources has God given me in abundance? That, too, is a gift. Spending some time seriously and soberly contemplating those questions and then asking for the input of people who know you is a great place to start when it comes to discovering your gifts. It really is, as a starting point, just that simple. Of course, having a gift isn't enough. We have to use our gift. Now, that's obvious, but I think that's where a lot of us get hung up. You all have a gift. You all have unique gifts. You have gifts that I don't have, strengths that I don't have, resources that I don't have. And that's true whether you realize it or not. The crucial issue is whether and how we use them. So, once you've started to get an idea of what gifts and resources you have, you have to ask yourself the question, how can I use my gifts and resources to serve and love my brothers and sisters in Christ? If we want to fulfill the responsibility, the standing orders that God has left for us, we have to find out what our gifts are, and then we have to say, how can I use my gifts and resources 
to serve and love my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a fundamental aspect of what the church is. A community of Christians who use the gifts that God has given them to serve and love one another. What does the New Testament say the church is? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. It's a community of Christians who use the gifts that God has given them to serve and love one another. Now you may find that your gifts lend themselves to being used in some sort of formal ministry, and that's great. Maybe you teach Sunday school, you help with the administration of Awana, or you join the team here at the church that cleans. But that's not the only way to use your gift. You don't need a formal ministry program, a role with a title and a badge, a name tag, in order to serve in the church. You can use your gift of hospitality, service, encouragement, or generosity in the context of good old-fashioned relationships. You don't need a formal program in order to serve and love your brothers and sisters of Christ. Maybe, maybe that's where you should serve, but not necessarily. I'm not preaching this message to try to drum up more involvement in formal ministry programs. Apollos had a gift, and he used that gift. The New Testament teaches us that we all have a gift, and that gift has been given to us for the purpose of service. So we need to follow Apollos' example here and use the gifts that we've been given. Second observation. Apollos used his gifts despite his limitations. Apollos used his gift despite his limitations. Acts 18.25 says that, that Apollos used his gifts of teaching and speaking effectively even though he only knew the baptism of John. That's an important detail in this little story. Of course, the Gospels teach us, you you may or may not know what that means, but the Gospels teach us that uh, John came before Jesus, paving the way for him in a manner of speaking. John was Jesus' forerunner in a manner of speaking. Luke 3.3, for example, tells us that John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was John's ministry. But John's ministry was not a full gospel ministry. John was a precursor to Christ. He came before Christ. Read, uh, you can read the prologue to John's gospel uh, if you want to get an idea of the relationship between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry. It's a good uh, place where that's sort of succinctly put. The ministry of John was the only ministry that Apollos knew. It was not the full gospel ministry. He only knew the ministry of John. So he had limited gospel knowledge. Apollos had a very real and noted limit. Still, even with his limitation, Apollos used his gift. Now, hopefully the application to us is obvious because we all have limitations. Though we each have a gift, none of us has truly, fully mastered our gift. That is not a a prerequisite to using your gift. We each have a gift, but none of us has truly, fully mastered using it. I'm certainly not up here preaching because I think I've mastered the discipline of preaching. And it's out of my mastery that I now grace you with my masterful mastery. I don't teach because I've mastered teaching. I've got a lot of limitations I need to get better. I need to learn more. And we all have limitations. You might think to yourself, yeah, I'm good at administration, but I'm not God's gift to administration. 
Well, that's not exactly right. If God has given you the gift of administration, then you are God's gift to administration in the church, despite your limitations. We all have limitations. We all fall short of perfection, both in terms of our mastery of our gifts, but also in terms of our sinfulness. But we cannot and should not use our limitations as an excuse not to serve. We should always strive to be better. And of course, we should relentlessly pursue holiness. We should be careful not to use grace as a license to persist in our limitedness. Still, it's because of God's grace that we have gifts. It's because of God's grace that we are qualified to use our gifts. And so it's on the basis of God's grace, not our own mastery, not our own righteousness, that we commit ourselves to the ministry of serving our brothers and sisters with our gifts. Our limitations cannot be an excuse to not use our gifts. Apollos had very real real limitations, and yet he still used his gifts, and Acts tells us that he used them effectively and accurately. We are to do the same. Third observation. Apollos was humble enough to see his limitations and willing to receive correction and instruction. Apollos was humble enough to see his limitations and willing to receive correction, and instruction. Apollos was clearly a good and accurate speaker and teacher. As we just saw in verses 24 and 25, uh, Luke is full of, or uses plenty of superlatives to describe Apollos' ministry. Yet Apollos still had limitations. He was good at what he did, even though he had limitations. But he still had room to grow. So in verse 26... We read that two of Paul's associates, co-workers, who he had just met and begun to work with not long before we get to Acts chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila, they heard Apollo speak in the synagogue, they heard his limitations, and realized that they could help him. So they took him aside quietly, that's an important detail, they didn't um, uh, publicly shame him, but they took, aside, they took him aside quietly and explained to him the way of God more accurately. That's an important little detail in this story. Apollos taught accurately, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they were able to teach him the way more accurately. Despite Apollos' limitations, he was able to have some degree of effectiveness. But with the correction and instruction of Priscilla and Aquila, he was able to learn the way of God even more accurately. Now I want you to try to imagine the humility involved in Apollos' willingness to listen to Priscilla and Aquila. Apollos already had a good, effective ministry. It's not as if he was struggling and really looking for help. And yet, he was willing to learn. We need to have that same sort of self-awareness, humility, and willingness to grow. This is right out of uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment. We should always want to improve, and we need to have the humility and self-awareness to submit ourselves to correction and instruction if we want to do so. If you're not ever willing to be corrected and instructed, shown a more accurate way, then you're never going to grow. Loving correction and instruction, constructive criticism, help us not only in honing our gifts, 
they also help us discover what our gifts are to begin with. We need to be willing to be told what we are not good at. Maybe you want to teach Sunday school, but you're not very good at it. Maybe you're not great with kids. Well, we need to be humble enough to hear that. Again, Romans 12.3, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment according to the portion of faith that God has given you. As you go on and see later, if you read Romans chapter 12, when, when Paul there is talking about the portion of faith God has given you, he's talking about the gift that God has given you, the role that he has given you to play. Think of yourself according to that. Put another way, you have to be okay with the role that God has assigned to you. And if you're ever going to grow in honing your gift, you have to be humble and willing to accept constructive criticism, just like the example of Apollos. Fourth and final observation. Knowing your gift, using your gift, and honing your gift in the way that Apollos did is the only path to effective ministry. Knowing your gift, using your gift, and honing your gift in the way that Apollos did is the only path to effective ministry. It's the only path to church health and to church growth. As a result of Apollos knowing his gift, using his gift, and honing his gift, his ministry continued to be and perhaps became even more effective. Verses 27 and 28 give us a glimpse into Apollos' ministry after the intervention of Priscilla and Aquila. Look uh, specifically with me at the second half of verse uh, 28, uh, uh, 27 sorry, into 28. When he arrived, he being Apollos, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. This man who formerly only knew the baptism of John and was able to teach accurately now is able to powerfully refute the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, I'm always wary of formulas, especially when it comes to preaching narrative, not to be critical of what other people do, but a lot of times pastors will turn to a narrative and say, here are the three steps to this, or the four keys to that. And I don't want to venture into that, uh, that water. I don't think there's any method or tactic that guarantees ministry success, whatever success means. When it comes to ministry, there are no three steps or four steps. There are no three keys or four keys that automatically, automatically produce church health and growth. Here I'll go back to God's plan, God's purposes, God's sovereignty. I don't always or even often know why some ministry efforts are effective and others aren't. Sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's dumbfounding. But what I do know with certainty, and this is important, what I do know with certainty is that the only good way to do things in God's church is to do them God's way. The only good way to do things in God's church is to do them God's way. If we're faithful to do what, God's, what God instructs us to do, and again, look at Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4, again and again and again, you get the same instructions. If we are faithful to do what God instructs us to do, 
I'm not promising any particular automatic result. God is the one who oversees results. Those sorts of things are in His, plan, are in his hands. But what I am saying is that the only path to church health and growth is God's path. Does that make sense? I'm not guaranteeing any sort of automatic result, but what I am saying is that the only path to church health and growth is God's path, following the the standing orders that He has left for us. Knowing your gift, using your gift, and honing your gift doesn't guarantee any particular result. But because I'm confident that these are unambiguously the standing orders that God has left for us, I'm sure that this is the only path to effective ministry and to church health and growth. Again, there can be no other way because this is how God has laid out for us to do it. A church simply cannot be healthy and growing if it does not do what God has instructed it to do. That makes enough sense, right? A church simply cannot be healthy if it does not do what God has instructed it to do. And so we Christians have the responsibility to proactively discover our gift, use our gift, and hone our gift. Amen.